the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today we're going to hear from the two development organizations that are proposing this big addition to the District Detroit, which is the area around Little Caesars Arena in downtown Detroit. What effect do they believe this development will have on our city? What benefits will there be for residents and how do they justify the large ask for a public subsidy? Also, they will take your questions on the phones and on social. It's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us. The physical being that is the city of Detroit doesn't just poof into existence from thin air. Rather, the things around us, the things that make up our city, are built on top of history on top of work from the past. And that's especially the case with a project like the District Detroit. It was originally pitched as Little Caesars Arena and lots of other developments that would surround it. Residential developments, commercial developments, retail districts. But now that it's built... It's really just the arena and a few other things around it and an awful lot of parking lots. But the developers and city officials are back working on the District Detroit again and have proposed a new deal. Led by the Illich Family's Olympia Development and Stephen Ross's related companies, The new plans include building four residential buildings, four commercial offices, two hotels, on-site parking, and public space enhancements all right around the area that surrounds Little Caesars Arena. The project is estimated to cost $1.5 billion and is projected to be done by 2028. It also is asking quite a bit of the public. An $800 million public subsidy is attached to the proposal. Earlier this month, we spoke with a reporter about all the goings-on related to District Detroit. And now we want to welcome some of the people who are proposing this, who are planning this to the show to give their side of things. We want to know, how will Detroiters benefit from this development? What kind of benefits will reach people in places that are far flung from downtown Detroit? And why should we as Detroiters be trusting that this project will actually come to fruition given the disappointment 
that surrounds the original pitch that accompanied LCA. To talk about all this and to make the case for District Detroit, we've got two folks who are intimately involved in the project. Ryan English Barnhill is the Vice President of Government and Community Affairs for Olympia Development. Ryan, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Thank you for having us. And also with us is Andrew Cantor. He is the Executive Vice President for Related Company, Stephen Ross's uh, business. Uh, Andrew, welcome back to Detroit Today. Thank you so much. Great to be back. So, uh, Andrew, I want to start with you. Uh, Make the case for these new District Detroit plans. Talk about the things that will change uh, in this area as a result. Talk about the interest that related companies has in this area and uh, in the development. And give us a sense of why you believe Detroiters uh, should be supporting this, Uh, what, what we will be getting out of this plan and why why it's worth it from your from your point of view. Sure, and thanks so much for having us again. Um, wh- what we're talking about is a uh, a ten building uh, proposal, uh, which involves both new and renovated buildings. Um, these are exactly what you identified as parking lots to be developed um, that we are planning to build on. Uh, all of the new buildings will be built uh, on surface lots or single-story buildings that uh, that are, are not currently, um, you know, their highest and best use. And we're also taking a series of buildings that are not in service right now, historic buildings, and adapting them, reusing them, repurposing them, um, and bringing them back to life. Um, and so this is, this is really about bringing life to uh, the, the district around uh, the projects that have already been completed, and there have been a series of projects that have been completed, as you noted. Um, there's always more to do, and there always will be more to do. And um, but but what this represents in terms of benefits uh, for the city of Detroit are 12,000 construction jobs that are projected, 6,000 permanent jobs, um, a a neighborhood advisory council process, a CBO process that has led to a, a historic um, $167 million commitment to community benefits, um, which is the largest agreement to date, including uh, the, the largest uh, cash commitment to benefits from a developer um, to date. Um, and it is also um, an opportunity to build uh, affordable housing in a city that desperately needs more affordable housing and in a location um, that has not historically been able uh, or been a location where people um, were able at the income levels that we're talking about to live um, for, for, you know, this we're talking about income levels for our affordable units um, that are represent 50% of the area median income um, significantly below the 80% level that is uh, that would be required for a development of this type. And so I think it reflects uh, a, a major step forward in terms of the uh, kind of mixed income neighborhoods that, uh, that really build strong downtowns. And it reflects a significant amount of outreach and, uh, and conversations that we've had with community members through uh, the last two years mm-hmm. to make sure that we are 
building something that the community embraces. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, Ryan, I want to bring you into the conversation here. You're the vice president of government and community affairs at uh, Olympia. Uh, talk about this area of the city where this uh, development is being proposed. Uh, there are there are many things that are happening in that area because of uh, the Illich family and the things that they've decided to do. There are also things that are not happening in that area that the Illich family promised to do. Um, talk about what, what this proposal represents and why Detroiters, I guess, should trust this time that what we see on the billboards and the, the, the presentation materials is actually going to be what we, what we get in this area. Sure. Uh, so I'll start by saying the Illich family has been rooted in Detroit since 1989, um, and they headquartered their business in downtown Detroit when many companies were not. Uh, and so there has been a significant uh, allegiance to the city and to Detroiters. I would also like to say since the arena was built, projects have come forward. Uh, and to rattle off the, a few, uh, there's Women's City Club, a historic asset that has been restored. The Eddy Stone, which is residential, another historic asset. The Global Resource Center. Uh, that sits on Woodward, uh, 2715, another building that sits on the frontage of Woodward. Uh, and additionally, retail and dining has been brought forward on Columbia Street. Now, with that said, I do understand uh, that, uh, that that doesn't necessarily match the, the big vision that was laid out uh, many years ago. I think the difference now is that we have a partner that has built world-class assets at scale. Um, and I think this time around, we really have an opportunity to impact Detroiters positively, not just with a single project, but with 10 projects uh, that are looking to be built concurrently. Mm-hmm. So uh, I want to have you talk also, Ryan, about the affordable housing part of the project, which I think is pretty significant and important, but also uh, the Metro Detroit Black Business Alliance, which is uh, pushing to have black-owned businesses and vendors operating in that area, another really important part of this uh, project in a city like Detroit. Absolutely. Um, so I'll, I'll start with housing, uh, and I'm glad that you brought that up. This has a significant impact on housing in the downtown area. Um, we're looking at 695 new mixed income residential units, and 139 of them are devoted to affordable housing at that deeper AMI. So that's the 50% range, um, which is not typically done in downtown areas, and it really does open this up um, for all Detroiters to take part in it. So we are really proud of bringing that forward and getting to that deeper affordability. Uh, and then the impact on Black-owned businesses in Detroit. Um, so that is a core value that our organizations uh, have deemed to be important. Uh, and it's in our 5E framework is what we're calling it. But we believe we have a, a really heavy hand to effectuate change in economic inclusion. And so, yes, we are members uh, and we are connected to the MDBBA, uh, and they have great leadership over there in Charity Dean and Kaiwan Bowman. Um, and we have been working with them and to understand what their membership needs, um, but also our NAC chair, our Neighborhood Advisory Council chair, Mr. Chris Jackson, also had a really um, big priority around the inclusion of Black-owned businesses. And so in our $167 million community benefit package, we've earmarked uh, a goal of spending $100 million with Black and Brown-owned businesses uh, because this was so important. And we, are, uh, we do have a significant purchasing power uh, in, in the area. And so we believe that this is uh, our way to demonstrate a commitment to small business 
uh, and really leverage what we have to grow businesses in Detroit. Yeah, uh, I'm talking with uh, Ryan English Barnhill, who is the Vice President of Government and Community Affairs for Olympia Development, and with Andrew Cantor, who's the Executive Vice President for Related Companies. They are both working for the developers of the District Detroit Project, uh, which has been proposed to be expanded beyond uh, the footprint it currently has to include uh, more residential and commercial uh, options than than we have right now. Um, we would love to hear from you, the listeners, during this conversation as well. Call and tell us uh, what you think of this proposal. Uh, do you want to see this kind of development, more of this kind of development in downtown Detroit? Um, uh, give us a call and let us know if you have questions for the developers of, of this project about what they plan to do. Uh, also, give us a sense of what you think of the subsidies that have been requested for this project. Um, do you think uh, Detroit should be, and the state of Michigan actually uh, is involved as well, do you think we should need these kinds of subsidies to get these kind of projects done, is this the right way to spend this kind of uh, this kind of money? Uh, as always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you that way. Uh, Andrew, before we get to our listeners, um, I, w- I do want to talk about the subsidies, and and I want to talk about them, I guess, in a in a in a historical context. And it's something that's just been kind of uh, uh, eaten at me for for a bit. So if we go back and talk about the stadium that we built uh, in the earlier uh, 2000s um, and look at the subsidies that were required to get those done, they were about – they equaled about a third of the total project cost. And part of the argument that – was made at that time, uh, which which was a really different time, of course, in Detroit in terms of development, was that the market here is, is tough for developers, that the return is not what it would be in some other places, and so there's more risk involved. And we need those kind of subsidies to, uh, you know, to make the developments worthwhile. Um, Implicit in that argument, though, is that if you change the market, right, if you build up uh, downtown Detroit and make it more uh, economically stable and uh, make it possible for businesses to flourish, um, you should need less of that subsidy, right? The market should move over time to a place where you need less subsidy. So if I look at this deal, um, we're talking about more than $800 million for a project that uh, is in total going to cost about $1.5 billion. So we've moved from about a third of the project in subsidy to more than half. That seems to me to be moving backwards. Uh, and, and I want to have you talk about, um, I guess, why that's true and what, what I guess, will be necessary to get to a point where we don't need these kind of subsidies um, for every project that, that comes across the transom. And, and again, that we don't need more subsidy uh, 20 years after uh, we started this kind of uh, activity than we did when, when we began. Sure. And, and Stephen, thanks so much for asking that because I think this is a, 
it's a complicated issue um, and with with a, with a lot of programs that are involved that that don't really boil down that well into a quick sound bite. So I appreciate the time to talk a little bit about it. Mm-hmm. I think that just right head on to your question about the level of subsidy, what I think is important to understand about this support that we have requested um, is that it comes over 35 years. And so and it only comes when we have actually completed the projects. And so this is not a uh, this is not a, a subsidy where the public sector takes the risk, but instead we as the private sector put up 97% of the of the private capital, of the capital for the project, of that $1.5 billion of developer investment. And the resulting support only comes along the way over the next 35 years if we build the projects and only on a proportionate basis as we actually complete the project. So if we complete one project, it's much less support. And it's, it's all sort of scaled appropriately. The second thing I would say is because it's over 35 years, if you look at it on a present value basis, if you look at what those dollars are actually worth today as, as a comparison to the $1.5 billion that we're putting up today, it's closer to $250 million. So what you're actually seeing is a reduction in the amount of subsidy, just as I think you would suspect should be the case and would hope would be the case. Um, so I, I think it's really a matter of how one looks at these numbers how the headlines are kind of calculated versus the the reality because telling someone that they're going to receive uh you know a rebate in 35 years is a lot less appealing as you can imagine than saying that you'd receive it up front so there really has been a shift in the way that the public sector i think is structuring the support to ensure that it's performance based and to ensure that uh that that it um that it is measured and and really only targeted to meet the to sort of bridge the gap between feasibility and non-feasibility to make sure the projects do go forward. So, so, so would you say then that the market is healthier in downtown Detroit and that there is less risk that developers are taking by investing this way than there was when we built the stadiums, for instance, or, or, or some of the other big projects uh, downtown? That that shift in the, in the approach to the subsidy, in your mind, is, is a sign of... Uh, of that improvement, am I hearing that right? So, so, we were we were not active in the mark in the Detroit market at the time, so I, I couldn't comment on that, Stephen. But what I what I can say is that it's a gradual process. That at ten years ago, right, we're talking about a city that had a historic bankruptcy, and to now be saying that there are private sector developers who want to invest one point five billion dollars in projects here is a significant step forward. I would also say that. If the arena hadn't been built and the ballpark were not there, the the part of the reason and the rationale for being able to build the density around it would not exist. And so what we're what we're proposing is a continuation of work that was proposed years ago has taken too long. I think we all acknowledge uh, relative to what was promised, but has reflected the pace of what it takes to to build large projects in Detroit right now, the market realities as well as, uh, you know, a a pandemic that none of us could have foreseen. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, we need to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to continue talking with uh, Ryan English Barnhill and Andrew Cantor, and we will get to you, our listeners, on the phones and on social. Uh, We'll start with Rachel in downtown, Lucy in Detroit, Dave in Farmington, Bernadette in Old Redford, if you want to join them. 313-577-1019 is the number here. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We can work you into the conversation that way.
We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm glad you've joined. We're talking with Ryan English Barnhill, who is the Vice President of Government and Community Affairs for Olympia Development. Also with us, Andrew Cantor. He is the Executive Vice President for Stephen Ross's related companies. Uh, they are both working for the developers of the District Detroit project that is being proposed right now. We want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Let us know what you think of the project. Let us know if you have questions for uh, the developers about uh, how this is going to work, how all of this is going to benefit folks here in the city. Uh, Also give us a sense uh, if you believe we should be continuing to publicly subsidize projects like this, something we've been doing for an awful long time here uh, in Detroit. Uh, Is that the right way to redevelop downtown uh, to move things forward? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Uh, You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you. I want to start today with Rachel, uh, downtown Rachel. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Happy to be on. Yeah, go ahead. Um, Yeah, so I've got two questions. Um, The first one is around the pro forma. So really excited. I I will say a huge supporter of public subsidy and this type of mixed-use development. Um, I I know the 50% affordability, love hearing that that's such deep affordability. That is also going to be one of the things that um, allows us to get more subsidy into this type of project. So question about the pro forma, wondering what other income streams we're looking at here. I heard parking. um, And so wondering how big of an impact we're thinking some of those other aspects of the project are going to have on overall project costs. And then second question is around um, the longevity of that affordability. A lot of times when you go for public subsidy, right, you've got an earmark on how long those units have to stay affordable, wondering how long we're expecting that affordability to stay in place in this project. Mm. Uh, Great questions, Rachel. Really appreciate the call. Ryan, I'll start with you and then we'll go to, to Andrew to answer the questions. Sure. Thank you. Uh, so I'd like to start by my partner could probably answer these questions uh, better <laughs> I than say, I can. But what of, I will yeah. say, um, the reason that they are such a great partner, uh, speaking to that commitment to affordability, they have never flipped an affordable unit that they've built. Uh, and so with that type of history and a commitment to affordable housing, it makes them such a perfect match for us at Olympia Development. So, so Ryan, I, I want to make sure our listeners understand what, what you're saying. I know what you're talking about there, but but talk about flipping affordable housing, what that means and what that does uh, to, to the market. Sure. Uh, so the affordable housing that they have built across the nation, uh, they have never gone back on that commitment, which means that they've never turned it over to market rate. Um, and so their commitment to that, right, to keeping the affordable units, uh, is something that we believe is admirable, um, but also a way to, to ensure that people of all income levels can take part in the energy and excitement of a downtown area. Yeah, yeah. Um, Andrew, uh, uh, I want to have you address uh, Rachel's question as well. Sure. And uh, why, don't, why don't we talk about the affordable housing commitment first, just because that's already been discussed. And mm-hmm. I would just say that, uh, Rachel, it's a great question for uh, for these projects. We're talking about a 30-year affordability commitment as our initial commitment. And so that far um, 
outstrips the length of of the supportive uh, tax payments that that are provided as part of the you know what's talked about as the subsidy. Uh, it is. I would also say that the state support that we're receiving the transformational brownfield program, uh, you know, it's it significant. It leverages significant state dollars to support growth in Detroit, um, which is a, which is an exciting dynamic to see. Um, and it is though not a tool that is particularly powerful for housing or affordable housing because it it really relies on income taxes at the state level that are generated being um you know being uh contributed to the project over the life of, of that period and so what we've uh we were fortunate enough to uh to be the first recipient of is a is a new loan program from the downtown development authority uh this, this is the city's downtown development authority um which will provide uh low cost uh financing uh to support lower levels of affordability so so this is really a matter of, of taking uh, of the you know the public sector, I think hearing uh, from the fr from from the community what it wants and wanted to see, and working with uh, the private sector to create tools the private sector can access to create um, more of that opportunity for deeply affordable housing. Um, in in terms of the mix of uses uh, that are that we're thinking about, this is a range of of hotel two hotels in the project, um, office retail. Um, uh, so shops and dining, um, as well as the, the residential projects um, that are included in it. The other project that's not included in this, but I think is a critical element of, um, of what makes this project special and, and different from anything that has been brought to, to the area before, is the uh, University of Michigan's uh, Center for Innovation, mm -hmm. um, which will be a $250 million uh, facility slated to break ground this year, um, which uh, will be a source of both um, new talent um, and an attractor for employers um, from across the state and really across the country, um, as well as as a a, a, a facility that, that has significant upskilling curriculum for Detroit residents and Michigan uh, residents uh, who are seeking jobs in the knowledge economy. And so this this is overall about creating a project that um, that that is set up for the future and for a future that is uh, is focused and built around a knowledge economy and making sure that more Detroiters can participate in that than uh, than would otherwise be the case. Yeah. Uh, Chase on Twitter has a related question. He says, District Detroit is making a big play for demand for office space with so much office vacancy around the country. Why does this make sense in this project and for this downtown? Uh, Andrew, we are seeing you know our downtown struggle the way uh, many others are post-pandemic. People are not going back to work in quite the same way. Uh, does it make sense to be building office buildings in 2023? So what we've seen across the country is kind of a, a, a divergence, Stephen, uh, between um, older office product that, um, you know, it, it really has was was on the verge of obsolescence or maybe obsolete beforehand. Um, but that obsolescence has really been hastened uh, by the pandemic. And then a set of, of demand for, and a significant amount of demand for new office space from companies that really value bringing their employees together, value innovation, um, and, and value uh, the, the apprenticeship model in some ways, right? The, the importance of being able to, to learn from someone who has already done the, the role before. Um, and so, uh, and to be able to learn in person 
uh, and, and absorb by osmosis as much as by formal training uh, what it takes to do the types of jobs that we're talking about. And so, um, you know, we have seen across the country significant demand for that type of office space. And when you look at downtown Detroit, um, there really isn't very much of that that has come to the market, really almost none of it. And so uh, we do feel that there is a strong demand and will continue to be a strong demand for that and and think that it's critical to maintain and grow um, the office stock in downtown Detroit so that companies do on a local as well as a national basis have a place where they can uh, where they can continue to, uh, to to bring their talent and where that talent can continue to shop and 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 live and play, all of which um, creates a stronger uh, downtown. You know, the, the the most important thing that we're seeing across downtowns and how they're sort of the resiliency we're seeing is is where there are mixes of uses, the downtowns have come back much stronger. Right? There's there's no shortage of people who are visiting bars and restaurants, um, going to uh, hear music and do all sorts of things. But and so the more that that becomes uh, connected to uh, their their work experience, so it's a live work play environment. Uh, the more appealing it becomes, and and the, the stronger and more robust um, the neighborhood will become um, through through any future changes and downturns that may come, as well as through the good times that we expect are ahead. Uh, Andy on Twitter says, given Olympia's track record on building anything other than parking lots, I think it's very fair for Detroiters to be skeptical of these claims. I'll believe these promises when they're finished building. Uh, Michael on Twitter says, I live in District Detroit now and have for over a decade. It's been frustrating to live here so far. This seems to be all about maximizing profits for this development. It's unclear what this development has done besides grow the wealth of the owners at other taxpayer expense. Uh, Ryan, I'll I'll give you a chance to to answer both both of those claims. Sure. Thank you. Uh, and thank you for the questions from the listeners. Uh, I would say two things. Um, these projects are, are taking that feedback. We're taking five surface lots and we are going vertical with development. Uh, that is the plan. We have no intentions of being long holders of surface parking. Uh, it does nothing for anyone. And so we are you know, listening to that feedback. And again, five of the projects are restored historic assets and five of the projects are surface lots that are going vertical and bringing density to the area. The other thing I would say, and this is just building off of Andrew's statement um, around what the DCI will do, what this density and the office market uh, is starting to show, is that we see this as an investment in the next generation as well. So right now, we have far too many of our young people uh, getting their diploma and a plane ticket. And so this really is about talent retention. And when I say that, we have to be thoughtful about attracting employers to Detroit. Detroit is competing with lots of other cities right now um, as far as getting um, big employers. And so in order to keep our youth here, in order to keep the talent here, we see this as a big play uh, in that way as well. So so I, I want to go back to the, the parking lot question. A lot of people I hear criticize the Illiches for – Essentially, creating this this sea of parking lots um, that's been there for a while now. I mean, they, you know, they've held a lot of this land over a long period of time. Many of them, are, you know, many of the lots are, are are parking lots, and that helped to to bring the area kind of to the the low state it is now. 
And now they're saying, well, we're going to fix that by building on these parking lots, but now we want you to help us help us pay for that. Um, how, how do you answer that criticism about what has gone on for the past few decades in this area that the Illiches have had a lot of control over? Sure. So I would say, again, the, the strategy has never been to just sit on parking lots. Uh, they were parking lots to then be t- turned into uh, development sites. And so, uh, as you noted, uh, there is a significant amount of parking. And oddly enough, that came up many times in our NAC discussion about would there be enough once these developments are brought forward. Uh, and so I do think it is a delicate balance of, one, maintaining enough to, to house all. We are the Motor City, might I remind everyone. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, the, the having enough stock for the assets that are going vertical is critically important. It is the entertainment district. We bring millions of fans into downtown Detroit. And so there is a need for it. But on the same side, uh, going vertical with development has always been the plan. And so I do think that these projects you know, answer that call. Um, and again, walking that fine balance of having enough, but also uh, building density and so that it is walkable as well. That's something that also has come up in our community conversations um, is, is a balance that we want to strike. And again, this is an extension of that inversional vision to really bring density to the area. And and if this plays out the way it did in the past, that these promises don't come true in substantial ways, Ryan, what's, what's the consequence for that? So uh, these are performance-based incentives. So I want to make that abundantly clear. Right. We do not... We do not receive any incentives if the projects are not completed. One more time. But what's the consequence for Detroit? I mean, what's the consequence for the area? What's the consequence for downtown? In addition to the subsidy question, right? You had already answered. I think you've uh, you've both already answered that. But but each time we get sold on this big vision and it comes up short, there is. I, I I feel like there are other consequences. I guess I'm wondering if you do. Well, I would say there's a, a lack of growth. We want the city to grow. I mean, I, I am a Detroiter. <laughs> you know that. Yes, I know that. <laughs> also, I, am, I, am, I am choosing to uh, raise my family here in the city, not mm-hmm. too far from the district mm-hmm. Detroit. And so I think the consequence is that it is not uh, the dynamic city of the future that we want for the next generation. We want Detroit to continue to grow and uh, live into its promise of being once again a world-class city. I know the mayor's priority is around uh, growing our population, and I think this is a step forward to do that, right? And so I don't want Detroit to be left behind, uh, and I do want us to be uh, the shining star that we once were, and I think this is a good way uh, to make inroads in doing that. Mm, yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number. Let's go to Lucy in Detroit. Lucy, welcome to the show. Hi, Stephen. Hey. Thanks for uh, the thoughtful conversation. Um, I'm just wondering if any of the Illich family actually lives in the city of Detroit and pays taxes here, or if they've had to go through the task of trying to find a school for their kids to go to in the city, or dealing with the city services, or, you know, like having their cars stolen, or, you know, just any of the things that make it difficult to live in the city. I just think this whole thing smacks of extractive capitalism, and I, I just, I really, I can't get behind 
giving them any money. Mm. Uh, Lucy, uh, I, I appreciate the call. I appreciate those those thoughts. I hear them a lot in uh, in, in Detroit. Uh, Ryan, I'll give you a chance to answer. Well, I can't speak for where anyone else lives, but I can tell you that I am in the city and have been um, my whole life. And so I understand the frustrations or, or some of the things that come along with urban living. But I can also say I've been uh, on the east side of the city for the last 11 years now, and I've seen a market improvement in all of the things that you just mentioned, a uh, reduction of crime, city services. I think things are getting better for the city, but it is um, – it is a, a, a path. And I also think that it's in coordination, right? This is a public-private partnership. And so we know that on the city side, they are working to improve the quality of life for Detroiters. But we are, too. And I think a big way to do that is through job creation. Um, with this project, we're bringing forth 12,000 construction jobs and 6,000 permanent jobs. And those are not numbers uh, to sniff at. And so I think the 6,000 permanent jobs in particular are exciting because these are careers. Uh, and so I believe that a pathway to home ownership, and then I think of that as neighborhood stabilization. These are things that have positive outflowing effects um, from our project. But again, there are a lot of other players in this uh, from the development side, but also the city side. And I do think we are all pulling in the same direction now. Hmm. Okay. Uh, Ryan English, Barnhill, and Andrew Cantor, I really do appreciate you giving us the time uh, to come on and, and make the case to our listeners about uh, the district Detroit. Uh, obviously, there's still some hurdles to, to clear. And so uh, we're still uh, be following all of this and, and hope that you'd be open to coming back and and talking again as uh, as we get started. But I but again, I really do appreciate you both being here. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having us. Mm-hmm. Thank you. When we come back, we are going to continue talking about the district report, Detroit, but uh, this time we're going to talk with a reporter who has been covering the project and the proposed changes to this part of downtown. Malachi Barrett uh, covers the city for uh, Bridge Detroit. He's going to come in and uh, tell us what he makes of all of this and how the neighborhood council uh, meetings unfolded that we're going to decide what the neighborhood benefits would look like behind the district Detroit. We also want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and we'll work you into the conversation. We'll be right back with more. Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you decided to join. We want to continue the conversation about the district Detroit, the area around Little Caesars Arena, which is proposed for major changes in the coming years. Uh, we want to welcome Malachi Barrett to the conversation. He's a reporter for Bridge Detroit, a place that I also work here in the city. He covers the city of Detroit and has been reporting on the district Detroit development. Malachi, welcome back to Detroit Today. 
Good morning, Stephen. Hey. Thank you for having me. So I, I first want to just get you to react. I, I assume you've heard much of at least the conversation we had with uh, representatives of Olympia and related companies. Um, what did you hear that uh, that stood out to you in in in, in their pitch to, to the city and to Detroiters about why they should be able to do this? Yeah, I think there are, there are kind of two things that really stood out to me. I mean, first of all, in observing the communication, the discussion that's gone on between uh, the community and the developers over the last really three months, um, you know, it's been hard to find people who are outright opposed to any development in this area. Um, you know, people remember what it was like when there was even less uh, in this area, you know, when there was more, um, you know, debris and, and crime. And, you know, I've run into a handful of residents um, who, you know, remember what it used to be like in this area. And they like to see forward momentum for the city. They like to see progress for the city. Um, you know, there seems to be a, a fun of fundamental skepticism, however, that the jobs and the housing um, that will result from this project are for Detroit residents. There's a feeling that the subsidies are, are escalating in large projects like this. And that, to me, really kind of forms a lot of the, the criticism around it. So, you know, the developers talk about all of the positive benefits that will come from this. I mean, I, I think there will be, um, you know, an argument that this is going to make Detroit better in some capacity. But from the community perspective, you know, again, there just there seems to be a feeling that the construction jobs, uh, you know, the, the tech jobs that result after this project is complete, um, you know, are not going to go to majority Detroiters, and then the housing is not going to be affordable for folks. Um, the other thing that, that kind of raised in my mind in, in listening to them uh, was this idea that, you know, if the eligible activities are not completed, if the construction is not done, if, you know, cleanup is not done, all of these other things that are part of the, um, you know, the deals that goes with these subsidies, um, the developers won't see that money. Um, and, and we're actually seeing that kind of in real time right now. I'm about to walk into a city council meeting where the council is going to consider terminating a brownfield agreement from 2007 for the Detroit Life Building, hmm. uh, which was in the past part of the District Detroit plan, is actually one of the uh, 10 sites for this new vision of District Detroit. It's going to be converted into uh, residential and retail. Uh, none of the affordable units will be there, but this is a building that's basically right next to, uh, it's across the street from Comerica Park, um, you know, right right in this area of the kind of events district that they mm -hmm. are, are working to build. So this actually is a case where, you know, since this uh, Brownfield Agreement was, was crafted in 2007, nothing's happened with the site, and uh, the, the city could peel back those, you know, that Brownfield Agreement. Now, I mean, I think that's kind of part of the plan here. This, is, this building is part of, the, you know, the, the next phase of development anyway. But that's kind of an example, I guess, of, you know, if developers are not holding their end of the bargain, there there actually can be some consequences for them there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I want to have you, before we get back to callers, give us a sense of the the neighborhood uh, advisory council meetings um, that, that have been taking place and what's come up at those and what we have kind of settled on out of that process. Uh, for the community benefits behind this project? Yeah, it's been a, a pretty fascinating process. The the Neighborhood Advisory Council is made up of a lot of, you know, average folks who just, you know, live in the impact area, uh, as well as uh, people who were appointed by uh, city council members, the mayor's administration, and have, you know, some more experience. Uh, two of the most prominent members, uh, Chris Jackson is a pretty prominent developer with some projects in the downtown area. Mm -hmm. And then his, uh, his kind of co-chair, 
Jonathan Kinlock, uh, I'm sure your listeners are well aware, you know, very politically involved, Wayne County Board of Commissioner, on and on. Um, so what we saw was a, a kind of interesting balancing of discussion of, you know, how, how can the NAC be really aspirational and, and, you know, demand more from developers through this agreement? That kind of hit the rubber, hit the road, I guess, uh, when when folks who were a little bit more aware of how, um, you know, this development process works and how AMI works for affordable housing and all that stuff, um, kind of had to put a damper on, on some of the things that um, I think maybe the more, um, you know, imaginative members of the NAC would have liked to see. And at the end of the day, I mean, the, the NAC voted 8-1 uh, to approve this, uh, this deal, and it will be moved forward to the city council for further discussion and approval. Um, I think they're ultimately, you know, pretty satisfied with what came out of that benefits agreement. Mm-hmm. But the community, people who came to speak at these meetings were overwhelmingly negative, felt that uh, this is giving up uh, a lot of money here, a lot of tax revenue over these 35 years to help make this project more affordable for the developers while not getting as much in return as they would have liked. And I think affordable housing is really the, the sticking point. We didn't really see much added to the deal beyond the agreement for 20% of the units to be uh, affordable at 50% of the area median income, which again, you know, that, that 50% deeply affordable is uh, an important benchmark. Yeah. Um, but that's only 139 units. And I, I think, you know, people would have liked to see more done there specifically. Now, what were there counter proposals? Was, was there something more specific? I mean, I mean, not really, but that's kind of the direction the, the conversations took. Yeah. yeah. Again, three one three five seven seven one zero one nine is the number here on the phones. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us. We'll work you into the conversation that way. Let's go to Bernadette in Old Redford. Bernadette, welcome to the show. Thank you, Steven. Hey. As I have lived here, I'm sure a long uh, than your previous guest. I'm not seeing these wonderful improvements that they're talking about. I can't afford to go downtown anymore. Mm-hmm. The parking in those lots. <laughs> I can't afford to go to see a hockey game or a baseball game. I don't see that I'm going to benefit. But my most specific question is, if it's this terrific, why not go to the bank and get your money? (laughs) Well, (laughs) that's a great question, Bernadette. Uh, The truth is they are going to banks uh, for this money. And and actually, the last time we had Andrew Cantor on, he was talking about the difficulty that they even still have, um, you know, getting uh, investors to take the risk uh, of, of development here. In Detroit, I think it's also important to note that even with the subsidies that they're asking for, uh, that the projected profit for the developers here is actually quite low. It's about four percent, which I think raises real questions about why uh, this is worth doing. If 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 the benefit to them and the benefit to us is both kind of questionable. Uh, what what are we what are we doing here? But that, I I think that's an important point, uh, Malachi. This this question about the money, where it comes from, who's on the hook, hung pretty heavily over the the NAC meetings, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a historic project in in more ways than one. A lot of very large numbers, a lot of zeros uh, being thrown at the community here. Um, I think really great question i mean why why is this worth the investment what can be done really to change this this overall environment i mean you asked uh earlier you know what what we seem to be going in the wrong direction mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the subsidies getting larger and larger and what what can be done i mean i didn't really hear the, you know, I, 
you know, learn more about that because it feels like, um, you know, d- developers really rely on this money that one sense it, it means they almost kind of take for granted the state and the city will, will help pitch in because the supposed benefit of more jobs and increased space are worth it. So, you know, that I feel like it could create kind of an arms race. I mean, I don't want to get too <laughs> hyperbolic here, but <laughs> right. it, it seems like there's nothing really on the other end of this conversation where how do we, how do we better incentivize development in Detroit without, you know, foregoing, foregoing all of this tax revenue? Yeah. Uh, Elena uh, in Detroit called, uh, couldn't stay on the line, but said that, you know, Detroit is the only place in Michigan that allows tax capture, taking money from our libraries, for instance, for these projects. And she said, we need that that money for our libraries. A really great point. Uh, Malachi, I know uh, you, you've got you've to run, you've got work to do, but I, I really do appreciate the, you coming by to, to talk about this. Thanks again for joining us on Detroit today. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having the conversation. Yeah. Okay, let's go back to the phones here. Uh, Robert in Detroit. Robert, welcome to the show. Hey, um, I I just think that we're going about this all the wrong way. We're we're investing in speculators. We need to improve our infrastructure, like the caller said about the libraries, the schools, public transportation. You you and we have blackouts where you know we don't have electricity. Mm-hmm. Uh, we people with electric cars couldn't you know refuel their cars during these blackouts. If, if we invest in our infrastructure, then we're not picking winners and losers. I don't think we should pick specific businesses. We have number one riverfront in the country. We have number one museum of art in the country. People are going to come and they're going to want to come to the city and live here because of the market. And we're not going to have to convince people to invest in the city. I'd like to see a high-speed rail, raised rail, like, like the little joke downtown, <laughs> all over the city, and and have that as an opportunity. So people who who have low income, they can live in places that are not so high income. You know, and, and they can, yeah, they go can ahead. work to get to get to the city center. You know, we we, we blew it on on that rail uh, back in the nineteen eighties, uh, Robert. When we built the People Mover, uh, there was a lot of wrangling over. Uh, how that was going to be funded, uh, whether how much the federal government was going to help. The original plan, I always say this when I talk about the people mover, was not just for the circle around downtown. There were also spurs going out, I believe, Gratiot and Woodward in Michigan that were supposed to to connect all of that. Um, and it never it never got done. We never got uh, the money to do a project of that size in this environment where the the federal government helps a lot less than it did back then. I, I, I don't I don't know that we could get it going. But your your point I think is that we should be taking some of the money that we're using to subsidize these projects and putting them in other other things. That is possible, but you would have to change a lot in state law, right? These these subsidies, especially in this project, come out of uh, state incentive. Uh, programs that would have to just be kind of reworked uh, almost from top to bottom in order to do that. But but great point, and I'm glad you called uh, to make it. Okay, that is going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow, and we'll have more great programming for you here on Detroit Today. Also, remember, if you like this show and enjoy listening, share it with your friends and your relatives, all the people that you know. You can find it at WDET.org or on our Detroit Today podcast wherever you download podcasts.
This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.